Well, let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. As uh, we continue our study there, we're going to read through verses uh, verses one through eleven. <clears throat> Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if, you hard, uh, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Lord, we come to some sober words this morning, but also wonderful words and truths for us to take into consideration. And we see, Lord, the, the nature of what it means to believe and the hope of our faith in Christ and the, the singular importance of believing in Jesus Christ. So would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning as we come to your word. And in your name we pray, amen. So we have this this command early on, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. The word consider here is is not give a casual glance to, uh, have you ever thought about kind of thing, but to think hard and to think well, to think biblically. He's speaking, he says, to holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. He's writing to those who have have claimed to be Christians, and many of them are are truly born again. He makes it clear as we go through this book that many of them are. But he also recognizes that there are some within their midst who have uh, perhaps claimed to be Christians, but are deceived in that. They have not actually trusted in Christ and they're, they're tempted to go back to the old way. And so the, the, there's a single exhortation given, consider Jesus so that genuine believers would be strengthened. Uh, the, the people that he's writing to are facing persecution. It's not just that they're lonely for the temple and missing all of the rituals and the rites and the splendor of it, they're, they're facing growing persecution in the world as, as Christians. When Christianity was first birthed on the day of Pentecost, 
For the next couple of decades, the Roman Empire considered Christianity to be a form of Judaism like Phariseeism or Sadduceeism or the Essenes or the Zealots. It was just another, um, the word then was cult, but just a cult not meaning what it means today, cult simply meaning a, a different form. It was just another form of Judaism. But, but by the 50s and the 60s, the Jews in, in Israel especially were making it clear to the Romans they don't have anything to do with us. And so the protections that were given to Jews were being removed from those who claimed to be Christians. Jews, uh, for the most part, there were some who objected, but Jews, for the most part, had no problem giving a subtle nod to the Roman Empire as the empire required. But Christians refused to do that. And so persecution is coming up. That, that drives... Any true believer, when it's heavy enough, when it's long enough, that drives any true believer to wonder if they wouldn't be better off taking another road, maybe better off in hiding. Um, and it certainly has a way of, of shaking out um, false believers. I, I started reading the book Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormbrand. Um, this is the 50th year since his release from prison and the, the publication of his book. He was a Romanian pastor who was imprisoned by the Russians, tortured for 14 years. And when they, he and his wife became Christians and they began ministering to Russians, one of the things that he said is they, they would go into an area and there would be soldiers there and they would be speaking and soldiers would come over and, and say that they were also Christians and could they talk to them. And so they would sit down in a, in a restaurant or something and, and begin to talk about the gospel and talk about the things of God. And, the, and he tells a story of a soldier saying to him, if I reach out and touch your knee, stop talking about the Bible because unbelievers are around. And so they would talk for a while and then another soldier would come in and the man would just reach over and casually put his hand on Wormbrand's knee and they'd talk about the weather or soccer or something else until the man disappeared. There's a reality to to suffering that causes us to say, let's be careful. But that can come up to a point where it actually discourages our faith. Genuine Christians are supposed to be encouraged by these words. And false Christians are being warned to repent. They're being told there are no halfway, half-saved people. There's no halfway point between heaven and hell. You're either um, still enslaved to your sin, and that's Egypt, or you've, you've been delivered into Christ, and that's the promised land. Jesus, he says, is the apostle and high priest of our confession. There's two great words. The word apostle means a messenger or an ambassador. Moses was a messenger, as there were many messengers. But Jesus is the messenger. He says in, in uh, Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, God after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son. And there's a finality to that that says what came through Jesus is, is final. Once Jesus had communicated through his apostles to us, they had recorded the scripture. There was nothing more to come. Jesus is also called the high priest of our confession. And as the high priest, uh, that for the Jews, that immediately calls Aaron to mind. Aaron was the brother of Moses. He was the first high priest. Aaron, of course, was followed by many other men. 
Um, Jesus is the high priest. He's not followed by anybody but he, because he continues to live. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25, it says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him because he, or since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is the final messenger of God to mankind. Jesus is the final high priest. We don't need any other high priest. We don't need any other priest. We don't need any other mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus. And so Moses, or or the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it, says, think carefully about these truths, that Jesus is the final word of God, and that Jesus is the final mediator. We don't need an additional word, and we don't need an additional mediator. And then he gives a a comparison between Moses and Jesus in verses 2 through 6. He says about Jesus, he was faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. Now, in your Bible, his house, his there might be capitalized, which would indicate it's the house of God. It may not be capitalized. The sense of it is that it's the house of God. Moses didn't build his own house. There's nothing in scripture that ever talked about the house of Moses, ever. So even the Jews would have acknowledged that the house that Moses was in was the house of God. Some translations capitalize house to make, help make it clear. Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, and Moses was faithful to God who appointed him. That's a, that's a comparison that they have. That's something they had in common. They were both appointed by God for their unique ministry. But there are also some important differences that were given. Jesus is called the builder of the house. Verse 3 Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more glory than the house. <coughs> Moses is the house. Moses is part of the house. Remember in 1 Peter chapter 2, Christians are called living stones that are being built up into a holy dwelling for God, a house for God. Moses was a stone in that house. I am a stone in that house. Autumn is a stone in that house. But Jesus is the builder of the house. That's a significant difference. The builder of the house being God himself, verse 4 tells us every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Jesus is God. He's the builder of the house. Jesus is worthy of infinitely greater glory than Moses. Another difference that we see is in verse 5. Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house. One of the things that we notice when we study the Bible is prepositions. Prepositions like in, of, over, under, next, by. Those are important words. They they show us the relationships. What we see in verse 5 is Moses was faithful in... But in verse 6, we see that Jesus is faithful over. There's a significant difference there. 
Moses is faithful in the house of God as a servant. He was a servant in the house of God. But Jesus is faithful over the house of God as as a son, as an heir. So there's some significant differences. Moses' faithfulness brought forth the scriptures. That's what we're told. Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. Um, I've recently been rereading the Torah, and it's, it's really, really a powerful, powerful set of statements and, and scriptures and stories about how God um, began with the entire human race. Man falls. Things get worse and worse and worse. He preserves Noah and his wife, his sons and their wives, and the rest of humanity all the land animals are, are killed. He begins over, and it just continues to be bad. He, he draws Abraham out. The book of Numbers says that the family of Abraham were idol worshipers. So he actually sovereignly chooses Abraham, you're going now to follow me. You're going to worship me. And he says to Abraham, go to the land that I send you, and I'm going to give it to you and your descendants forever. And I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Abraham and his wife Sarah had no children. When God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, Abraham is already an old man. He is 75 years old. Sarah is 65 and they have no children. They waited quite a long time, 25 years for the birth of Isaac through whom the the nation Israel eventually comes, but not until God has made other choices. He chooses Isaac, but not Ishmael. He, he chooses Jacob, but not Esau. And then he does choose the 12 sons of Jacob. But even within the 12 sons of Jacob, he says it's, it's the, the line of Judah through which the Messiah will come, the Savior will come. It's the line of Levi through which the priests will come. And so God then sends this family of 70 people into Egypt He sends Joseph first there because of his brother's sinfulness. And over a 420-year period in Egypt, those 70 people become hundreds of thousands. 600,000 is the number that's given. If that is just the the men, then the people who leave Egypt number in the millions, which is certainly possible. If 600,000 is the total, that's certainly still completely possible. He brings these people out and he delivers them out of Egypt and then wants to bring them into the promised land, but they refuse to believe and they refuse to obey. Moses is the one leading that effort. Moses is the one that God appoints as the deliverer out of Egypt. So Moses is not being criticized here. When he compares Moses and Jesus and says they have some similarities, but they have some important differences, he's not criticizing Moses. He's simply saying Moses was a servant. And it's important that we know, too, that the old covenant was not destroyed, overturned, because it was incompetent. It was fulfilled because it was, it was preliminary to the promise of God. Moses had a crucial role to play. The New Testament never downplays his faithfulness, but he was nevertheless just a servant. Jesus, on the other hand, as we've already seen in Hebrews chapter 1, at verse 2, is the heir of all things. 
the one through whom God made the world, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of the nature of God, and the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, and the one who made the pure, made purification for sins. Jesus is infinitely greater than Moses as the son over the house. Now, what's the house? The house is us. The house is the people of God. The house is not a building. It's not a structure. It's not a temple. The house is not the earth. The house is not the universe. It's not our solar system. The house is not a system. The house is redeemed sinners. We are the house of God. Christ was faithful over us as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. This, the word confidence here is, is a, a word that's used elsewhere, translated elsewhere as boldness or plainly. Uh, Mark says that Jesus told his disciples plainly that he would be crucified. So plainly, being clearly, being uh, nothing is cushioned for them. Nothing is, is kind of softened for them. He tells them kind of bluntly. John 7.26 says the people of Galilee saw Jesus speaking and acting publicly. It's this word, publicly, confidently, boldly, openly, clearly. And they even said, wow, maybe the leaders think he's the Savior. He's speaking so publicly that the leaders would have to know. Maybe they've given their approval. The apostles also had this confidence. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John go to the temple to pray. They, they uh, come across the man who was crippled laying there in the, in the beautiful gate. He's healed, causes a riot basically because they heal him on the Sabbath. <coughs> Peter and John are arrested. They're told not to preach in the name of Jesus and they're turned loose. And they, they, they do what our brothers and sisters, many of them in China, are doing. They go right back to preaching in the name of Jesus. And they're rearrested. And it says in, in Acts chapter 4, this is, this is really a, a stunning statement. Acts chapter 4, verse 13 says, They observed, the leaders observed the confidence of Peter and John, the boldness the clarity, the bluntness of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. And they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. So he just says, point blank, they're not educated. They've not been brought through all of the training and the teaching that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had. Most people, contrary to popular opinion, most people at that time, uh, at least Jewish men, were literate to some degree. They were, they were taught to read the scriptures. They were taught the alphabet. Um, these men were taught, but they weren't educated, and they were untrained. Untrained meaning they weren't trained to be public speakers. They weren't trained to be debaters. That was a whole different level of, of learning. Um, years ago, there was a poll taken about phobias and fears. And Dennis probably knows the answer to this, so he's not allowed to answer. But the, the number two fear, the, thing that the, the, the second most thing people are afraid of is death. 
the thing, the number one thing people are afraid of is public speaking. Which means that if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be in the coffin than delivering the eulogy. That's Jerry Seinfeld. Thanks to Jerry Seinfeld for that. But th- that's, that, was, that was this thing. Well, that kind of recognizes what's being said here. They're uneducated and they're untrained. Not only have they never been taught all of these things that they're teaching, but they've never been trained to do this. And it says they saw that they were uneducated. They could, they could hear it. And they saw that they were untrained. They're not up there as brilliant orators. But what they have is confidence, boldness, clarity. And maybe they've even got the clarity because they're uneducated and they're untrained. They're, they haven't been taught how to be clever. They're just standing up and saying, as they, see, standing up, there we go. They, they, they just uh, stood up perhaps as Paul did in, in Acts chapter 17 when he's in Athens. And he says, God is appointed a day on which he will judge the nations. And he has given testimony of this by raising a man from the dead. And he commands all people everywhere to repent. The, the philosophers in, in Greece and Athens were unused to hearing that kind of a blunt, in-your-face, clear, unvarnished declaration of truth. They didn't know what to do with it. Most of them mocked the idea of the resurrection. Well, that's the confidence we're supposed to have. If we hold fast our confidence, our boldness, our clarity, and it's, it's kind of underscored with the phrase, the, the boast of our hope. The boast of our hope. So as we're asked, where is our hope? Or when the world challenges us, where is our hope? My hope is in Christ. My hope is not in me. As I drive down the street, I don't close my eyes and take my hands off the steering wheel because, after all, my hope is in Christ. But as I live my life, as I face events that I I can't predict and I can't control, we saw that this week with the Kavanaugh hearings and with, with the ultimate vote and with all the battling that was going on with all of that, there there were obviously people on both sides of the spectrum coming unspooled as opposed to saying ultimately our hope is in Christ that has to be the boldness of our hope the the clarity of our hope so if we put those together saving faith is unmistakable faith in spite of opposition saving faith is a stubborn faith in spite of opposition it's not perfect saving faith doesn't get it perfect every time it's got to stand up and and say something that saving faith doesn't back down at least on the inside you you can you can take a human being and subject them to the kinds of things where they'll they'll stop talking but you can't forcibly change the heart now we cannot and must not try to force anybody to believe in christ but for ourselves we must never back down from our faith in Christ. We have nothing to be ashamed of. We have nothing to be afraid of. We need to stand on the sufficiency of Jesus' cross, the truth of his resurrection, the authority of his word. We need to proclaim the gospel without apology, without shame. In simplicity, not in anger, not in 
forcefulness, but with clarity. That's the sense here. I think that there was a point at which the, the original recipients of this letter had said, Jesus is my Savior. All my hope is in him. But the circumstances of suffering or the, the, the splendors of the temple caused them to say, well, it, it wouldn't hurt to have a, another option. And the nature of the gospel is it does hurt to have another option. We're, we're not allowed in Christ another option. I've had people say to me, well, I know, I know, I'm trusting Jesus, but I do this just in case. Well, that means you're not trusting in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus means that when you're hanging on that rope on the side of the cliff and you can't hang on any longer and he says, let go, you let go. And it's a scary thing to let go. People say it couldn't hurt to have a backup plan. It does hurt because that sort of faithfulness might reveal an unregenerate soul that shrinks back in fear. Can I just say this? The Lord is not insensitive to our fear. He's not insensitive to to the pain that we feel and to the suffering that that we face. He's not insensitive or, or callous toward our weak humanity. He knows, the Psalms say that he knows that we are only dust. He knows that. He knows that. He's not calling for us to do the impossible. He's simply calling for us to not deny him. If I denied that Linda was my wife, nobody would ever say that that was a, a wise thing to do or a courageous thing to do or a faithful thing to do. What if it came time to deny her that she was my wife or die? I, I guess I have to die. It's, it's, it's so simple. It's so simple. We in the United States haven't faced the kind of pressure and persecution that even, even our, our friends in China have faced, and they haven't faced yet what's really terrible, as some in the world are facing today. Turn the mic off before I cough. <coughs> kind of. What Richard Wormbrand's story tells us, what Brother Andrew's story tells us, what Corey Tenboom's stories tell us, what those stories tell us is that as the persecution comes, the grace of God meets us in that place. That sitting here this morning, we know that we're not going to be raided by military personnel who line us up against the wall and threaten to kill us if we don't denounce Christ. We know that's not going to happen today, this morning. And we're afraid of what would happen if it did. I don't think we need to be afraid of what will happen if it did. Because the Spirit of God will meet us in that moment and grant us the grace. That's the, the history of the church from the apostles through those who are giving their lives today. Well, as, as we look at this then, he says, we are God's house if we hold our confidence in the boast of our hope firm to the end. We don't earn our salvation. We don't atone for our sins. We don't have to live a perfect, flawless life in order to be joined to him, but we, we must believe. We must continue to believe. 
bringing it home is, uh, is what we see in verses 7 through 11. That's what I call the, the application portion. And it's really wonderful when the scripture simply bluntly tells you this is the application. So here's the application, verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. Don't harden your heart because of jealousy over what the temple has. Don't harden your heart over fear of what the world threatens. Don't harden your hearts. If you think about it, the people who were who provoked God in the wilderness, which is the context here, had no reason to doubt him. The Lord said this in Numbers 22, or Numbers 14, 23 and 23. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of these who spurned me see it. And what I want you to see here is that these men have seen the glory of God. They saw the signs God performed in Egypt. (coughs) They saw the signs he performed in the wilderness. They've continued to put him to the test ten times, multiple times. They were delivered from slavery in Egypt. Think about this. They were delivered from slavery in Egypt. They were protected by God's power from the plagues and during the parting of the Red Sea. They were... That God destroyed the Egyptian army to protect them and glorify his name. They had the constant presence of God day and night, the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day. They were fed miraculously by God's hand. They were given water miraculously as God brought water out of rocks in a waterless place. And yet they continually made God prove himself to them. They said on multiple occasions, did you bring us out here to die? Well, no. That's why you're not dead. And there were times that God punished. There were times that God corrected them. The truth is, God would be justified requiring faith without any additional evidence than what he's already given us. This is Romans 1, 18 through 20. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. What this says is every human being on the face of the earth has an inborn, innate understanding that there is a God, and that we actively, because of our sin nature, suppress that. That's what Scripture says. The idea of doing... Uh, presuppositional apologetics rather than evidential evidentiary apologetics tries to prove the existence of God first presuppositional apologetics says you know that there's a God if you ever wonder how to use that in a practical term I'll I'll give you an example of how to use that in a practical term Do, do people have value you can ask anybody, do people have value? Should we respect the rights of other people? Should we, should we respect their safety? Should we care for the poor? And you're going to get every, every person in the world, and especially every liberal in the world, nodding their head and saying, yes, absolutely. Why? 
if we're just animals? Why? If we, if we evolved, then if I destroy you, that's just what animals do. And I've said to people, see, you're talking, you're talking like somebody who knows that we're created in the image of God. I've used this, by the way, with environmentalists. Should we take care of the environment? Absolutely. You're talking like somebody who knows that we are to be caretakers, which is what God made us. We are caretakers of the world. We're not here to abuse it and destroy it. We're here to take care of it. You're talking like somebody who knows. So we can use this. God would be justified demanding faith without giving us any additional evidence. But he gave us the evidence of the scriptures. And he gave those in the wilderness sign after sign after sign after sign. He defended them. He fed them. He led them. He provided for them. He corrected them when they sinned, but he didn't completely destroy them. And he says there, Your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is specifically talking about the moment when the Lord had said to Moses, Send out spies into the land, one from each tribe. Twelve men went into the promised land. And they were to come back with very specific, specific information. What's the land like? What's the water like? What will it grow? What are the crops like? Where are the cities? How big are they? Are they walled? Are they fortified? A lot of really good information. They came back, and the report on the land was awesome. The land is fantastic. The land is unbelievable. What a great place. But 10 out of the 12 said there's no way we can go in because the inhabitants are too fearsome. Caleb and Joshua said, no, God's going to fight for us. But the people of Israel said, no, 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 we're not doing it. And God said, enough, enough. This generation that came out of Egypt is going to die here in the wilderness. Everybody who's 20 and older is going to die here in the wilderness, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. So when they crossed 40 years later, when they crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, the oldest people were 59 it was, a, it was a fairly young group. Now, God didn't break his promise to the nation. He delivered the nation in. But those people didn't get to see the promised land. They didn't believe. They fell away. They said, we want to be delivered out of Egypt, out of slavery, but we don't want to be delivered into the promised land. There are people today who say, I want to be saved from the world, but I don't want to be separated from the world. There are people who say, I want deliverance from my sin, but I don't want Christ. And by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, people who who come to church, who get involved in churches, people who get involved in Bible studies, change their thinking and change their behavior, have a better life. But that doesn't mean that they're saved. Without that personal surrender to Christ, personal faith in Christ, they don't enter the promised land. And that's why he says, don't harden your heart. What I want to do is quote Deuteronomy 30. If you don't want to write this down, Deuteronomy 30 verses 15 to 20. But I'm going to quote it in light of the gospel, not in light of the law, but in light of the gospel. 
See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. In the scripture, in that, scripture commands you to, today to love the Lord your God, to trust his son Jesus Christ, and to follow him as Lord, that you may live and that you may be saved. But if your heart turns away and you will not believe the gospel, but are drawn away to a faith invented by or corrupted by sinful man, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you the gospel and warned you not to fall away. So choose life by holding fast to Jesus Christ and his gospel in order that you may live. See, this is what's required of us for salvation, to trust in Christ. That's it. That's it. There's no laws to obey. There's no atonement to make. He doesn't say, I'll only save you if you go to China, if you go to Iran, if you go to North Korea and publicly announce that you're a Christian so that you're killed. I'll only save you if you've given a, a true tithe on your income or if you've, if you've truly taken a Sabbath every week. I'll only save you if you're, if you're in the upper 70% or upper 20% of morality in your, in your church or your town. I'll only save you if you stop watching that show on Netflix or if you stop using those words. I'll only save you if, he says, I will save you by your faith. And he calls for not a moment of faith, but a life of faith. But that's not burdensome. That's not burdensome. As we come for communion this morning, Scripture urges us, commands us to examine our hearts. And I think the examination this morning is, is my heart hardened before the Lord? Is it leaning toward being hardened? Is it being hardened by persecution or pressure? Is it being hardened by temptation? Is it being hardened by weariness? And if it is, ask the Lord to soften it. Or is your heart humbled and soft before him? If it is, give him thanks. The only two people who know where your heart is is you and the Lord. I don't know. You don't know where my heart is. I'm trusting that he is softening me and that he is softening you as well. Father, as we prepare for communion, we ask that you would grant us your peace, that you would grant us the clarity to understand whether or not we have been hardening our hearts toward you or growing in our faith. Lord, we all know people who have made a profession of faith and then have walked away. We don't know where they are with you. We don't know what their spiritual state is like. We plead with you to call them to faithfulness. We plead with you to grant them a permanent saving faith. Lord, we lift up those who are struggling and are weary, and we ask that you would encourage them and give us the ability to encourage them. We lift up those, Lord, who are tempted by empty expressions of religion and show them that those things are empty and bring them back to genuine faith in the Lord Jesus. Lord, we lift up those who have been lured away by the temptations of the world and ask that you would have mercy on them and reveal to them 
the emptiness and the futility of pursuing those things. And give us, Lord, the boldness and the confidence and the assurance, the clarity in the gospel to proclaim it simply and gently and firmly. To be unashamed and glad that you have saved us from our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.